Hello and welcome to this week's Next Sense Institute podcast. My name's Trudy Smith and I am your digital host for today. It's my very great pleasure to have the first of the SEVI keynotes who is going to be talking to us prior to the event on the 18th to 20th of January 2023. Lisa Ham, welcome. Please introduce yourself to our audience. <laughs> Kia ora, Trudy. Thank you so much for having me on today. Um, my name is Lisa. I'm currently a research fellow at the University of Auckland within Optometry and Vision Sciences, um, and I'm funded through the Royal Society of New Zealand Te Aparangi uh, Fellowship, so I'm doing a postdoc currently. Nice, and it's lovely to have you in our part of the world as you do this work. <laughs> I'm wondering, Lisa, how did you get involved in work related to visual development? Yeah, so really convoluted, actually. I was one of these geeky children that was doing paper craft of visual illusions when I was like six. So <laughs> I think I was always really interested in vision um, from different perspectives. So I always really liked art, um, was interested in science um, and specifically like the eyes and stuff. Um, and probably some of that was because uh, growing up, my mom had a visual impairment that was, um, I'm gonna say subtle, like it wasn't super obvious from the outside. Um, and during portions of her life, it's fluctuated a lot. Um, sometimes she's had quite good central vision. So um, one of these visual impairments that maybe a lot of people weren't aware of from the outside. So I think I was just sort of um, subtly aware of this idea that people could see the world really differently. Um, and I guess broader that you, you never know what people are struggling with. Um, you don't always see that stuff on the outside. So I think I was just sort of aware of that in the background. Um, and then as I made choices and what I was going to do in school, um, uh, since I started university, almost every independent study and every degree I did was, was about vision in some sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And I understand that you've also done volunteer work in amazing places like Kilimanjaro. Right. Well, in that case, I have to say I'm very lucky they, they let me come on to help um, with some of their work there. Um, I was really, really interested in the work that they were doing uh, while I was at the University of British Columbia in Canada. There was a speaker there who was from the Kilimanjaro Center of Community Ophthalmology, one of the directors. And uh, he gave this fascinating talk about children who were born blind um, and they were doing work um, to, to see what of those blindness and visual impairments were treatable. So children um, finding sort of children in rural areas who had treatable eye conditions. And one of those that he was talking about was um, cataracts. So those don't normally affect children. It's only about one in 10,000 children that get cataracts. But when they're dense and central and in both eyes, a child can be, can have have really profound visual impairment. So he was talking about going into some of these um, remote areas and training local cat um, cataract surgeons, pediatric ophthalmologists, um, who would remove these cataracts. Um, and he was talking about doing follow-up work and how some of these children, when they were going back to school, um, were, were really struggling and uh, what sorts of things, what, what challenges both on the um, he he was talking a little bit more at that time about um, sort of their role in society. Um, maybe some of the funding was taken away if they were previously categorized as a blind child and now not. Um, but at the time, I was doing a like sort of basic biochemistry neuroscience degree. So I was thinking about plasticity. And I thought, oh, man, these these kids have had this whole early developmental period where they haven't had visual input. Um, so I, I started to get really, really interested in how a child might see 
if their their eyes are clear for the first time. Um, imagining a ten year old who's seeing for the first time, um, I just got really curious. So I, I contacted Paul um, after that and just sort of said what I was interested in, asked if I could come, and it was it was quite gracious to allow me. I stayed there for a couple of months. Um, gosh, back in two thousand and eight. Now. Um, yeah, but I still um, I still have um, been in touch with them. There's a new director now, um, Robert, who um, or co-director. So I'm still still working with that group off and on. Yeah, and look, when you talk about that, you can understand that. You I mean your ac academic background is such an interesting mix of neuroscience, vision science, and community level eye care systems. You can see that that really would influence your professional perspectives and the ways that you the things that you research and investigate. Yeah, well, they're really it, it to me with my experience. Um, you know, any any child has a combination of what their sort of health is, but then also what their social context is and what their educational opportunities are, um, and then they have their interactions with the medical community. And so, from from my perspective, um, I suppose I've been really really interested in trying to understand. Uh, visual impairment and visual development from lots of different perspectives, which means then that I like learn different methods within uh, research capacity to try to explore that. So the the pro to that, I think, is that um, integrating perspectives, um, it gives maybe a, a richer view of complex problems. Um, and it's also just such a privilege to get to hear people who have, um, you know, lived experience and 10 years of studying something very specific and, you know, in getting to talk to people with all these different backgrounds um, and thinking about how that stuff might relate and translating between those perspectives a little bit. Um, the downside, though, I have to say, Trudy, is that I never feel like I'm an expert. <laughs> every room I'm in, there's people who know more than me about everything. <laughs> I, I, look, I, I think all academics feel like that and all researchers do feel <laughs> like that. But I, and I feel like, yeah, the people with the lived experience are the experts. And I was Absolutely. really, I was really, when you were talking about, you know, the going back into those environments, sometimes it's not the disability that's the problem, it's the environment that's disabled. Mm. Absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's something that um, has come up in so many different contexts. So it's, it's, it's environmental things, um, but, but also just how people understand something. Um, so I think any kind of brain-based visual impairment in particular, it's really, really challenging for friends and family and teachers and to, to sort of understand what's happening. And that can be so hard. And that's some, you know, like I said, my mom's visual impairment is relatively subtle, but there's all these little instances where she talks about, oh, that person must have thought I was just being rude because, you know, they might not be aware of, um, you know, all the work that she's doing to to compensate for what she's not seeing. And, and uh, working with children in all kinds of different settings with visual impairment, um, it's, yeah, whether they can articulate it or not because of their age um, is one thing, but it's, it is, it is challenging, you know, even for for myself and I'm sure you we we don't always know um how um these different impairments um impact people so hearing people's stories is is so critical 
Absolutely. It's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, what we ask children with disability to do far, you know, far earlier than their peers in terms of advocating for their own rights, advocating for, for things that will enable them to access the learning on the same basis as their peers. They have to be responsible and Absolutely. managing adult behaviour far sooner than their peers. Yeah, I had a, when I was working at the Canadian Institute for the Blind, I was testing a young girl and I held up this little acuity test and she said, oh, you're going to have to make that much bigger. <laughs> Bless her heart. I, I thought, what a good advocate for herself that she could articulate that so clearly and make, yeah, but that's, um, that's a skill and a lot of, um, and that takes a lot. Absolutely. And, and the way that she did that really kindly for you as well. Sorry, sorry, what was that? She did that so kindly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I, I'm reflecting on when you were saying about the brain-based vision impairment because I know yeah. that you're doing some investigations into the assessments of visual perception of children with, with cortical vision impairment. Are you able to, to, to tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, so I'm, I don't know, maybe halfway in a bit, a bit more than that into a project um, that's looking at sort of how we understand what children with um, brain-based visual impairment see or um, cerebral cortical visual impairment. There's lots of different names and I'm kind of interested in quite a wide um, variety of children who have these these kind of impairments. So um, both the sort of thing that um, that you and maybe some of the listeners would come across more um, where children sort of have a neurodevelopmental um, issue of some kind that causes their brain to process visual information differently. Um, but then I'm also quite interested in, um, in the, I suppose the sort, the first category is the sort of children we might see at blends like the Blind and Low Vision Education Network here, or that I would see um, when I was working at the Canadian Institute for the Blind. Um, so there's, there's that group, um, but then also this group of children who's um, newly sighted, um, who had that period of visual deprivation. So it depends. Some people might also call that CVI. Some people might not. So I think, um, you know, maybe brain-based visual impairment is what I'm using to cover both usually when I'm writing. <laughs> but that's, that's more for the sake of, I guess, being able to separate those groups in my research. So in the first instance, I'm just talking to people who work with these groups of, um, with these groups of kids to see what ways they're using just kind of day to day to understand what they see because there's so much observation and and watching that's absolutely critical um, when when these children can't communicate about their own perception. Um, but then there's also lots of information in the published literature about different assessment tools. So what we're looking into, we're doing very comprehensive reviews of all of those kinds of things um, to understand what exists. What exists in the research um, is not always practical for community organizations or for teachers. So doing a little bit of sort of sifting through what's there and then chatting with the people who are um, trying to understand what these children see day to day and maybe, you know, sort of presenting a little menu of things that that exist and say, well, which of these work um, in your setting? Uh, and then the um, another part of that is um, myself and some students are developing um, a, a test that we think fills some of the gaps that have come up through this process. Um, and I have to say that's so fun because <laughs> Um, we get to make these little sort of game-like kinds of assessments. Um, Nicola is is has a really cool one. Um, so we're, we're talking um, about Nicola McDowell. Yes, yep. Um, uh, she's been working. So I'm trying to make something that sort of complements what she's working on. Um, and as I'm going through this process of developing this, it um, it's quite fun to make it you know look really engaging, and it uses eye tracking so kids can interact with it just using their eye gaze. 
Um, and there's lots of things like this being developed in the past year. Um, the, the research on this has just exploded um, as the, the technology has changed um, where we, we can do a lot more with nonverbal children, inferring a lot about what they see. Um, as we've been learning more about sort of the visual neuroscience and looking at the sorts of, of symptoms we might be looking for, you know, we know we need to measure a lot more than, than visual acuity and that. So I'm um, kind of, you know, I'm thinking a lot about breaking down visual skills and, and um, how we can sort of merge um, what, what some of my training is around the visual neuroscience and the sort of bits of the brain and what they do, um, merge that with um, the functional outcomes that matter to kids day to day. Um, and it's a challenging task. It, it yeah. sounds like that's big um, and, and, but, but incredibly important work. Oh, and just drops in the bucket. You know, lots of people are doing this sort of thing and hopefully uh, we can keep chatting with each other and find some, find some better solutions to understand what these, what these kids see and work towards um, supporting them. Yeah, no, it's exciting. So as I as I mentioned at the beginning of, of the, the podcast, we're looking forward to your keynote in Aww. 2023 <laughs> on the 18th to the 20th of January. What can we look forward to learning about during your keynote? Yeah, well, I hope um, what I'm planning to do is present a little summary of um, this really unique group of children who have had this period of visual deprivation. And I think the reason that I wanted to talk about that for this particular group of people is that um, I, I imagine that a lot of people are seeing more kids that have um, visual processing challenges, either subtle forms or, or more severe forms. Um, and it's often, I think, if you're thinking about visual impairment from an ocular perspective, it can be a lot to think about the cerebral side. And um, potentially, if you don't have background in that, it can be a little bit complicated. Right. Um, and especially because kids that have neurodevelopmental challenges um, more globally, they might have additional motor or cognitive um, challenges. They might have trouble with verbalization and that um, so it's kind of hard to tease apart, you know, if someone's maybe struggling to um, to read or write, how much of that is is visual and how much of that is something else. Um, so I thought it might be interesting to present um, this this example of of children who have otherwise healthy brains, but have just missed out on on developing that visual experience. Um, and I'm hoping by sort of presenting that as an example, um, then we can talk about visual processing in a little bit more of an isolated way, which will hopefully um, be able to sort of um, present some ideas around visual processing that might be useful um, and is, yeah, hopefully something that um, people can sort of think about a little bit. Um, and selfishly, um, I would absolutely love to get feedback from educators in particular, um, because although my background is varied, I do not have any background in education. And I think that um, learning how to see um, after having, like when you have to teach your brain those things that the rest of us just do, we learn as we're babies. Um, you know, that's a lot of breaking down big skills into smaller ones. And I think that's um, really where teachers are going to have a huge role. And when we are when we're thinking about and, and already do. Um, but when we're when we're thinking about children with um, visual processing challenges or neurodevelopmental conditions, um, I think teachers hold some really special keys. So I am very excited 
to um, to hopefully be able to open up a bit of discussion. I know it's hard to get people discussing on Zoom, but um, if you're listening to this and you're going to be there, I would love to uh, to be able to to hear more about how we might do that, particularly for the low vision clinics um, that are in um, lower resourced areas that are dealing with these kids. Um, that are in the more unique situation of trying to learn to see after no visual experience, we're sort of looking at um, how we might um, look at low vision services for these kids. And I think teachers will just have so much good input. Absolutely. And in my experience, teachers are very comfortable telling you what they think, feel and believe. Right. <laughs> and we are trying incredibly hard to make sure this Bevy 2023 is an interactive conference. So it won't just be you talking to your audience. Hopefully they'll be talking back. And we encourage everybody to come along to the conference and continue this conversation with Lisa and 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 see where it takes us. But it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today, Lisa. Thank you so much for your time. And we really look forward to hearing from you in January. Oh, thank you so much. Such a privilege. And I look forward to hearing everyone else speak. Um, I'll listen to your next podcast to see what's coming. Um, and like I said, I always feel a bit awkward being uh, the person uh, saying information because I always know the more you know, the more you know you don't know. So I'm very excited to learn from this conference um, and be a part of it. Thank you for beginning the conversation and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much, Judy.